This morning comes from the book of 2 Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. We are, you know, having finished the book of Esther, we're now beginning a new series. And we're going to be looking at the book of 2 Peter. All right. Now, uh, as noted earlier in the service, right, we've got our new pastor, Joey, is going to be coming next week. And so when he comes, of course, he'll be preaching in the mornings and I'll be then preaching for some Sunday evenings. And so let this be a little bit of a taste of Second Peter for you. And if you want to hear the rest of it, you're going to have to come to, to evening worship. But uh, you'll remember that Adam had preached through First Peter, I think uh, about two years ago or so. And so I thought maybe Second Peter would be a fun, a fun book to take a look at. Now, there's some interesting things in this book, and we're going to see that as we make our way through it. Second um, Peter is considered to be somewhat of a difficult book in the New Testament. And so like a young seminary student, I decide I'm going to preach on a difficult book. So we're going to do that together here. Let's look at Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. So First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was once cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we rejoice this morning that we have this book that we call Scripture. And Lord, we thank you, especially this morning, for this book of Second Peter. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning and that it would be preached faithfully. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to work through the power of the word and that you would change us however you see fit. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. A few months uh, 
about a few months before Jordan and I moved to Jackson. Uh, we were in South Dakota. I was finishing up my undergrad. And during my final semester of my undergraduate degree, I took 24 credit hours worth of classes, which if you have any idea how much credit hours are in college, you know that's a lot of credit hours. Uh, I, was, I was like, I, there's classes. I got to get some of these before I leave because I wanted to have this class and this class, and they were all offered the same semester. So that's just how it worked out. And essentially, during that semester, I spent, obviously, a lot of time uh, studying, taking exams, writing papers, doing all of that kind of you know, college business. And what I figured out during that time was that I was spending an inordinate amount of time sitting around, reading, and thinking, and drinking coffee. Which, as you can imagine, that didn't just have an impact on my ability to regurgitate knowledge. But that had a profound impact on my waistline. And some of you know what I'm talking about, right? You know when you sit around all the time and you're not physically active, that's going to have an impact on your physical health. And so what I started engaging in during that uh, semester was I started going to the gym and I started changing my diet. And like how I do everything, which is never halfway, it always has to be very intense and very, you know, all the way, I decided to engage in a full weight training bodybuilding nutrition program. And uh, well, that might sound sort of funny to, to many people, I thought it was a good idea because I thought it'd be really fun. And I still think it's fun. I've been doing it for two years. Uh, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm eating almost 4,000 calories a day. Uh, it's a pretty significant program and I really enjoy it. It keeps me active and keeps me focusing on something other than you know, reading tons and tons of books or whatever. But one thing that I've learned in engaging in this kind of an enterprise is that There are many days when I am just thrilled to go to the gym. And I'm going to go in there. I'm going to get 10 pounds on my bench press. This is going to be a great day. I'm going to love this whole thing. It's going to be awesome. I'm so ready and I'm loose. These amazing days where I'm just like, yes, I can't wait to get in there. Some of you have no idea what that would be like to love going to a gym. But some days there are like that. Other days, however, are more like the days we may feel like more of the time. Because there are other days when I just do not want to go and do another workout session. The last thing I want to do in a day is that. Because, you know, I've got so many other things I have to do. I've got a Sunday school lesson to prepare. I've got a sermon to prepare. I've got papers to write and exams to take and classes to go through and and a wife to please. And all of these other things that I've got going on. And some days I just don't want to do it because there's so many distractions. Some of you are nodding out there. You know what I'm talking about. It's tricky. Some days I feel great. Some days I don't. Now, I know it's somewhat corny because this illustration is used quite a bit. But it, it is true that there's a certain sense in which the Christian life is a lot like this. There are some days and even some seasons of life where you are just overjoyed to read the word of God. And to pray to God. And you're on fire for the gospel. And you're on fire for Jesus. And your prayers actually last longer than 30 seconds. And you're all about what you're doing. You're excited to come to church. You're excited to hear the preaching of the word. You're maybe even reading some some books by theologians or by Christian authors. Because you're just on fire. And then there are other days or other seasons of life. Where you're just bombarded with all kinds of distractions Difficult things, kids to raise, jobs to do, projects around the house to get done, 
and you just, you just feel really tired and you just don't want to do it. There's a reason, folks, why in the scriptures there are so many calls to godliness. And the reason why the scriptures have so many calls to godliness is because God is very much aware that the Christian life is difficult. That the Christian life is a series of ups and downs. A series of being on fire and then really being distracted and kind of, kind of waning. And what we see here in this passage here in 2 Peter is we have this very idea. A call to godliness. Peter knows that Christians need to hear this. And that's what Peter's going to do here. In fact, what Peter's going to do in our passage is he is going to explain to us that the gospel calls us to godly lives. The gospel calls us to godly lives. And here's how Peter does it. It's actually rather simple. First, Peter explains God's work. He explains how God has provided salvation. In other words, Peter explains the gospel. And then the second thing that Peter does is he makes a transition and he says, because God has provided the gospel, because of God's work, now here's your work. Because God has saved you, here is what the Christian life calls you to do. The gospel calls us to godly lives. That's Peter's point here. So let's look at how Peter does this here. First, he's going to explain God's work. Right? And you can see right there in verse 1, Peter addresses this epistle to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter is addressing this epistle to Christians. These are people who have faith in Christ. So before we get into this whole business of talking about God's work and our work, let's just get something really simple and straight, just really clear here. When we talk about God's work and our work, we are not talking about the fact that God does this much of our salvation, and then we need to do a little bit more to meet him in the middle. This is sort of the view of the Roman Catholic Church. You are saved by God's work plus your works. Peter's not talking about that in this passage. Peter's talking about people who are already saved. They already have salvation. They have been justified by faith in Christ. And so what Peter's talking about here is our work in the sense of what we are to do in the Christian life as part of our sanctification. What we are to do is we pursue holiness in the Christian life. How do we live godly lives? Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. So let's just establish that right from the get-go here. This is addressed to believers who are already saved. Now, verse 3. Here's where Peter begins to get into God's work. What has God done for us in the gospel? He says in verse 3, His divine power has been granted to us, or excuse me, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So here Peter is explaining a couple of things that God does for us in the gospel. We're going to go through each of these rather quickly here. First thing, God has provided for us the knowledge of Christ. 
the knowledge of Christ's work. Now, what is that? Well, that is that Jesus, right, became a man, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died as a sacrifice for our sins, and then we receive the work of Christ as if we had done it. This is called imputation. That the work of Christ is imputed to our accounts by faith so that God looks at us as if we had lived the perfect life. As if we had died. So that's the knowledge of Christ that Peter's talking about here. He doesn't elaborate on it, but he just mentions it in passing. So that's the knowledge of Christ that God gives us. Secondly, God gives us precious promises. He gives us precious promises. These are the promises that we were talking about this morning in Sunday school. The promises of the covenant of grace. That God has promised to us the forgiveness of sins. That he has promised to us the Holy Spirit. That he has promised to us the transforming power of the Holy Spirit as we live the Christian life. That he has promised to us eternal life. That we will be with Jesus forever in paradise. So these are the promises that Peter is referring to here. God has granted these things to us. Thirdly, he says that God has granted to us that we would be partakers of the divine nature. Now, there's one of those difficult phrases in the book of 2 Peter. What on earth does Peter mean by being partakers of the divine nature? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. For one thing, Peter does not mean that the purpose of the Christian life or the purpose of salvation is that we might become gods. No. That's not what Peter's talking about. Nor is Peter talking about any kind of idea that we, when we become Christians, we in our humanness are sort of merged and mingled with God's divinity so that we become sort of semi-gods. That's not what Peter's talking about at all. Rather, what Peter's talking about in just big picture terms is he's talking about being conformed to the image of Christ. You go back to the creation of the world. When God made man, he made them male and female, and he made them in the image of God, right? That is what distinguishes us from the animals, that we are made in the image of God. Now, as we are made in the image of God, when Adam sinned, we didn't lose the image of God, but rather the image of God became marred, and totally infiltrated by sin so that the image became tainted and darkened and suppressed. And yet, when we become Christians, now that image of God, because of the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit in us, that image of God is being renewed in us. And it is being perfected. Not that it's ever perfect in this life, but it is being restored. And that's the process of union with Christ of sanctification, of growing in holiness, etc. And the reason why Peter refers to this idea as being, as us partaking in the divine nature is because we're partaking of the special gifts and the working of God, that it takes supernatural power to restore us from our sinful, marred, suppressed state of depravity. So Peter here is just talking about transformation. And that's something that God grants to us. And then fourthly and finally, Peter says that God has granted to us deliverance from sin and the power of the world. Not only in the form of the forgiveness of sins, but that we actually, as believers, don't have to fear the evils that are out there. 
Because God has rescued us from those things. Now, we don't experience that rescue quite yet. This is the already not yet part of the gospel. We already experience deliverance from evil, but yet not yet in its fullest sense. We won't experience a full final deliverance from evil until Jesus comes again. But see, these are the things that God has granted to us. And so you can see Peter is elaborating on the elements of the gospel here. As he begins his epistle, he's saying, these are the things that God has done for you. And then that's where we get to verse 5, where Peter says, for this very reason. So you see, everything he set up to this point is to establish what he's going to say next. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, before we go on anymore, we've got to stop and just, just take note here. Peter explains the gospel. And now what he's going to do is he is going to call his readers to sanctification. He is going to call his readers to a faithful obedience to the law of God. In essential, he is calling them to moral living. Now, this makes sometimes us Protestant evangelicals a little bit uneasy, right? Because, for example, we love to talk about justification by faith alone. We love to talk about the great truth of the scriptures, that our salvation is entirely dependent not on our works, but wholly and completely on the work of Christ alone. Right? We get that. But sometimes we have a tendency to stop there. And what begins to develop almost subconsciously in our minds at times is something like, okay, yep, uh, I'm a sinner. Jesus saved me from sin. Perfect. Now I don't have to do anything. I mean, I can't keep the law anyway, so I might as well just sit around. I don't really have to pursue holiness. Now, is that a biblical form of how we ought to respond to the gospel? No, absolutely not. Though our salvation is entirely based on the work of Christ, yet the scriptures repeatedly and continually call us to live holy lives in joyful response to the salvation that we have in Christ. So if I can put it really simply... We don't do good works in order to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. That's what Peter's getting at here. And so let us not think that this is legalism. When Peter calls his recipients here to supplement faith with virtue. That is to supplement faith with godly living. Peter's not teaching moralism or legalism here. He's teaching joyful Christian obedience to the law of God as a result of the salvation that Christ alone has merited for us. And notice also here in verse 3, if we were to go back a little bit, that Peter's not saying that this Christian obedience that he's calling his recipients to is something that we just muster up within ourselves. As if God saved us and then he's like, all right, you're on your own now. I saved you. I hope that you can do this, pull up your bootstraps, let's go, Christian. No, that's not, what, that's not what Peter's talking about at all. In verse 3, he makes it abundantly clear that God's divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to what? Life and godliness. In other words... When Peter calls his recipients to Christian obedience, he is not saying, guys, you have the ability to do this in and of yourself. 
No. Peter is saying, God has given you everything that you need to obey his laws. Now, Peter's not saying that Christians can do it perfectly. We will never perfectly obey the law of God in this life. So don't misunderstand here. But what Peter is saying is that God has equipped us with the power of his own divinity, with his own Holy Spirit. And we are called then in the power of the Spirit to, as Paul puts it, work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Not because we earn our salvation through works, but because we work out the implications of our salvation through good works. And so what Peter's going to do here is he is going to say, Christians, you're saved. Now supplement your faith with good works. This is exactly what the Apostle James does in his epistle. He comes to his readers and he says, hey guys, look, if you claim to be Christians, but you're living immoral lives, can that faith save you? James says no. Because actually, if you're not living a fruitful life, then that may be evidence that your faith is not genuine. That's James's point. This is Peter's point. He is calling Christians to live faithfully in light of the gospel. So Peter then says, supplement your faith with virtue. And you see, then he goes through this list of all of these sort of example virtues that Christians should have. And we could fill in this list with really anything that the Bible says that we are supposed to do. Because God commands these things and we are to obey them in joyful response to the gospel. Now, as Peter describes our work here, what we are to do in response to the gospel, he gives us not only a command that we are to practice godly living, but he also gives us three reasons why we should do that. And the first reason he gives us is in verse 8. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, Jesus has purchased you from sin. Now, go pursue holiness. Be the person that God has declared you to be on the basis of the work of Christ. You are not holy in and of yourself. You have been declared holy before God by faith because of Christ's holiness. But now that you've been declared holy, Christian responsibility is to go and pursue holy lives. And we'll talk about how we do that in just a second. But the second reason that Peter gives here is he says, for whoever lacks these qualities, this is verse 9, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, Peter's saying, look, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, And yet your life is one of consistent immorality. Or even if your life is not one that is pursuing sanctification. Then how can you claim that Christ has changed you? How can you claim that Christ has changed you? You have forgotten that Jesus has cleansed you from all your former sins. So now leave them behind and pursue what he is calling you to do. In other words, it's totally inconsistent to claim, I have been saved by Jesus, he has transformed me, he has changed me, and then to not have your life be affected. That is inconsistent. 
And then the final thing that, Jesus, that uh, Peter gives here, verse 10, final reason why he commands this, uh, these good works from his, his recipients, as he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And what's he talking about here? Well, here... As we see these words, calling and election, immediately what comes to mind is the doctrine of election. That grand teaching that we find in Ephesians 1 and 2, in Romans 9, and in many other places of Scripture. Where we are clearly told that from before the foundation of the world, God chose a certain people for himself. That they would be conformed to the image of Christ. And we call those the elect, because that's what Scripture calls them. And if we can sum up the doctrine of election in one statement, we would just say that we are not saved because we chose God. But rather, we are saved because God chose us. Now chew on that for a little while. When we come to the text here, Peter says, how do you know, how do you confirm your election? How do you know that you are one of God's children? How do you have assurance of your salvation? Now, on the one hand, in other places of Scripture, we're told that we have assurance by looking to the promises of God. And we learned in Sunday school this morning that we find those promises in the Word of God and in the sacraments. And so our primary means of assurance is Word and sacrament. But here Peter brings up another means of assurance that we can have. And Peter says, look, if you claim to have faith, then live godly lives. Why? Because in living a godly life, what actually happens is you can see in your life the fruit of the Holy Spirit and how it has transformed you. In other words, Peter really here is just talking again about the promises of God. Because Jesus and Paul and James and now Peter and the whole of the Old Testament say that if you have faith, if the Holy Spirit has worked in you, there will be a change in your life. And Peter here calls us to look at that change as evidence that the promises of God through Jesus, through Paul, through Peter, through James, through the Old Testament, all of that is coming to fruition. That you can see tangibly the promises of God coming to pass in your life when you see your good works and then you glorify the Father in heaven. So you can see Peter's got some really good reasons for why the gospel calls us to godly living. Why the gospel calls us to do what God has commanded us to do. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. And so that leads us then to sort of Bring all of this home here and say, all right, what does this look like for us? What does this look like for us? Well, what Peter's calling us to do here is he's calling us to examine ourselves for virtue. To examine ourselves for unconformities to God's law and to seek Mm -hmm. to obey him. And so the first thing then that we need to do, if we're going to do what Peter is suggesting that we do here, we need to examine our lives. We need to examine our lives to see, is there anything in my life that that doesn't correspond to God's word? Now, I can't stand up here and say, Jake, you've got problems, man. I'm going to list them for you here. 
right? I don't know what you guys are struggling with. I really don't. But you do. What are those sins in your life? Is it lust? Is it greed? About anger? Impatience? Worry? Control? Self-control? I mean, you fill in the blank. Do you have a lack of desire for the word of God? Do you have a lack of desire for prayer? Is it a drudge to come to church on Sunday? I don't know what it is that you struggle with. Maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's something entirely different. But we need to identify the places in our lives where we are falling short of the glory of God. And then you know what we do after that? We run to the cross. We run to Christ. We run to his gospel and we see, oh Jesus, you have paid for all of these things. None of this counts against me in the divine courtroom. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my lust. He doesn't see my anger. He sees his son, Jesus Christ, and the righteous robes that cover us. And he pronounces me holy. Not because I am in myself, but because of the work of Christ. And we run to Christ when we see those things in our lives that do not line up with his law. But there's more. Because we don't just see those things, run to Christ, and then stop. Well, I guess I can't keep the law anyway, so I don't really need to do anything different. No, Peter here calls people in light of the gospel to see those things, run to Christ in the gospel, and then to seek to kill those sins in our life, to attack them with scripture, to attack them under the power of the Holy Spirit, because we are called by the scriptures to live holy lives. And you'll notice that Peter here in verse 8 refers to this process of supplementing faith with virtue as an increasing process. This is something that we do throughout the whole of our Christian life. We are always looking for where we fall short. We run to the cross and then we seek to reform through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an increasing process, something we will never fully accomplish. But it doesn't matter whether we can fully accomplish it in this life. What matters is that God calls us to it. The Apostle Peter calls us to it. And we need to take seriously the call of God to live a godly life in light of the gospel. This is a call to obedience. The gospel calls us to a life of obedience to God. And it shouldn't be a drudge. It should be a joy. Because as David says in Psalm chapter 1, he says, The law of God is my delight. We should learn through the power of the Spirit to delight in doing the things that God calls us to do. All in light of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we rejoice this morning that um, 
we see in so many passages of Scripture, including this one, we see the light of the gospel. Lord, that while we were dead in sin, yet you have made us alive in Christ. But Lord, help us not. Help us not to become complacent. To forget that you also call us to obedient lives in joyful response to the salvation that you've provided. Lord, our works do not contribute to our justification in any way whatsoever. We are justified entirely on the basis of the work of Christ. And yet Jesus calls us to obedience. He calls us to a love, a delight in your law. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work that delight deeply in us. That we would take Peter's words in this passage extremely seriously. That we would find those places in our lives where sin is ruling. And that we would dethrone that sin. That we would cast it off the throne of our hearts. And that we would replace it with a love for Jesus. Lord, help us to find those places. Help us to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Where we see that gospel. And then help us, Lord, through the power of your spirit. To live holy lives unto you. For you, as Peter says here, have granted to us all that we need for life and godliness. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see that and that we would bear good fruit as your people today. We pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our song of response this morning is also from Psalm 31. We're going to be singing the rest of the psalm, verses 17 through 24. Again, those verses are in your bulletin and on the screen. So I invite you to stand as we sing Psalm 31 together.